Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. My father came home one evening and he was, he had been drinking and he came home and I think he was just at his wits end and his best decision, I guess the best options, his best uh, choices were to commit a family suicide. And so that evening he attempted to do so. I'm grateful that it was not successful. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey, beautiful souls. Welcome back to the podcast. 
This week I am chatting with Jules. Jules is the author of an award-winning book called The Making of a Woman from the Inside Out. The book is a memoir of Jules's life and when Jules was seven years old, she was living with her mum and dad like any other little girl and life was good. But something happened at the age of seven, a life-changing event which sent Jules's life on a trajectory that would change her life forever. What I love about this story is there's a beautiful full circle. Jules went through many years of struggling big time, but to see where she is at today gives so much hope to so many people to see how far she's come and what she's achieved. So please join me now in hearing Jules' story. Jules, thank you so much for being here. You are the author of The Making of a Woman from the Inside Out. You are a childhood trauma and sexual abuse survivor and you are now 14 years sober. So congratulations, that's truly amazing. We will talk about your book soon, but first your story starts with a life-changing event when you were seven years old. Can you tell us about that time? Sure. First off, thank you, Don. I'm glad we get to finally do this. Yes, when I was a child, I lived back in the Midwest. And so if you think, you know, back in the 70s, we didn't have a lot of resources. And so my family was not really sheltered, but we really just didn't have like the big city life of therapy and and just the awareness. And so I was an only child. It was my mom and my dad. And, you know, my mom had just the regular, I think she was like a secretary. So she had just probably a minimum wage job. And my father was, was always trying to, he was always trying to support the family but it just seemed like everything he would try is like almost like sand going through his fingers. And my father also had the disease of alcoholism. And so as I, you know, as I was growing up and at this point of age seven, my father came home one evening and he was, he had been drinking and he came home and I think he was just at his wits end and his best decision of the, I guess the best options, his best uh, choices were to commit a family suicide. And so that evening he attempted to do so. I'm grateful that it was not successful, but it was definitely, it was definitely something to endure. You know, it went on for the majority of the night, of course, the the cycles, you know, he would, he would uh, proclaim he'd need to go back and, you know, give me my kiss goodbye. And, and when he would go back, my mom would take whatever gun or whatever he had on the table and she would throw it off the, the patio. And so it was just this rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And, and I just had no idea. I mean, I'm, I'm six, seven years old. I adore my daddy. My daddy loves me. And I mean, he just keeps coming back and telling me he loves me. And so I really didn't understand the weight of it until my mom swooped me away. We got in the car at like three in the morning. I'm in my pajamas and, and we're like speeding down the driveway. And that's really where life just came to this screaming halt of life is about to change. Yeah, absolutely. My goodness. And I mean, what happened next? Did your mom just have to leave that environment for good? Oh, yes. 
Yes, we what we actually did is we we ran to some relatives for a short time, and then the agency that she worked for, one of the employees or whatnot, flew us down to Texas, and the divorce proceedings went on. And that at that point, I my father had no more rights to see me. I mean, everything happened so quickly. But then when we came back, it was almost like we were just plopped into a new life. We had a new place to live. I had no idea where my daddy was, but you know, my mom just said he's at work or this is how it's gonna be now. So it was really confusing. It was really confusing because it was like, what exactly happened here? And, and it, what, did I do something wrong? Yes, yeah, and that's exactly what, what every kid assumes when things aren't going right, isn't it? And you must've just been so lost to have lost that father out of your life who you obviously were quite close to. It was because, again, I'm, I'm a kid. Yeah. <laughs> I only did the fun kid-like things, you know, when my dad would take me in, the, in his truck and we would, you know, I don't know, throw, we, had, we had coon hounds. And so my dad would, he hunt raccoons. And so, you know, Yogi would be back in the truck. And it was just, I was just a joyful child because I had all of this. But then to have that, like, just ripped away with great confusion and then we projected into a whole new lifestyle. And then that led into a whole new marriage. It was like, I was totally lost. And I think my mom was processing. I don't even know if she would have been able to explain anything, even if I would have had asked. Yeah. And so you mentioned that you ended up in a new family with your mother taking on a new relationship. How was that new family unit that you landed up in? I remember it was big. <laughs> I went from being, you know, this only child to one of four at the time, the ones that actually lived with us. And so it was this whole new dynamic. I have a whole new, uh, you know, structure. My new stepfather is very, he's very strict. He was in the military, so he ran a very militant household. And, and literally, like, my mom lived at the front of the house, and, and then I was in the back with the kids, and it was like, now I have these new people that I'm supposed to be calling my relatives. And, and there's this huge disconnect between my mom and I. And, and so, and, and I don't know if that's what she felt she had to do to survive. Because I mean, let's face it, in the 70s, at minimum wage, she can't do that without some sort of aid or funding, you know. So perhaps this was her best choice. Yeah. And it sounds like you basically felt unsafe. I, I felt very, yes, very not protected. Absolutely. Because I didn't have any, like the parental, I didn't have that parental protection anymore. And actually now I've been, I become part of this, you know, these, these kids. And of course they're, they're all older than me. And, and that's where the sexual trauma started was with one of those new siblings. And so, yeah, it was very, I was very much, I just think of the word raw. I was so exposed. I was just so exposed. Yeah. And it must have been heartbreaking for you knowing that you had this dad who was, was so loving for what you remembered. And now you had this other man in your life who was very strict and quite different. And that would have been really difficult for a little girl to cope with, wouldn't it? 
you know, even just like that we would get with my daddy, we would get in the truck and he, you know, I'm just always by his side. And there was, you know, there was affection and, and admiration and, you know, this new person, I mean, he was larger, so he's physically like intimidating to me. There was never any sort of praise or those sorts of things. So yeah, it was just like this, this rip of existence. And, and now I'm in this really confusing, cold unknown area of life and and I don't have my mom really to to reach out to yeah so you felt like you weren't even able to have any kind of relationship with your mom now no I think she was in survival mode I really do because in the first marriage she she was just as loving as my father was and it seemed like she went through like this transformation in a sense where she just kind of put on this layer of like emotional armor and so I have to think that she had to do that in order to survive because, you know, there was sexual innuendos all the time within this family unit. And so perhaps that was one of her coping skills. But with that going, with those layers of armor actually going up, I really, I, I couldn't just sit down and talk to my mom like I used to because that mom wasn't there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard, isn't it? And obviously for her also, she was probably quite young and all of a sudden had a, an entire family to look after mm -hmm. and an interesting situation for her to land up in. So you're this little girl in a new family and you are quite isolated, I guess. And mm -hmm. there was a predator in that environment, wasn't there? Can you tell us about that? Yes, it was. First off, well, I learned later on that this was a common thread throughout the entire family unit and also previous generations. But I didn't put those pieces together till way later in life. And so when my mom was actually dating this, this soon-to-be stepfather, they had, I think this is common actually back then, one of the older brothers or sisters would, you know, babysit the younger kids. And then at this time it happened to be my soon-to-be older step stepbrother. And so the you know, the, the innuendos, it started to actually happen before my parents even got married. My step-parent, my step-parents actually got married. He was babysitting one evening and he came over and um, we, I had a toy room at my place. And so I had a toy room. And so he was back there with me and, and he had brought some magazines and he started showing me these magazines. And, and he said, you know, this is what big girls do. And this is what happens when you grow up and this is what your body's going to look like. And this is what you do with your body when it looks like this. Mm -hmm. And so it started way before. And so when, you know, the family, the, the marriage happened, the family merged, it, it was, it was like the perfect setup. You know, my parents went off to work in the morning. This stepbrother was, you know, he was supposed to watch us before we went to school. And so then it would happen, you know, every morning before I'd go to school, there would be some, some situation that would have happened before we all got on the bus each morning. Wow. And so you must've just woken up every day terrified for your day. Is that what it was like? You know, it was that feeling like we wake up in the morning and it's like, oh, just that weight, the feeling knowing that if, if I don't maneuver things correctly, I'm going to have to endure that again. And so I think this is really where I learned 
how to manipulate situations. So for instance, if he happened not to wake up, I'm a smart kid, I'm not gonna wake him up. And so then I started to be able to learn how to kind of move things. Like if I always, always had my other stepbrother next to me, then the other one would never come and this wouldn't happen. So I started to learn to maneuver people in my favor. And I guess you were never able to talk to your mom about this at the time? No, not at the time. That was probably probably like seven years later, maybe eight years later, I was able to. And it wasn't actually like I came to her. It was I was actually at a camp and I was having a fabulous time. Finally, people my age were listening to me. And, and so I was just, I mean, I was just spilling it. I was... I was talking about anything. And so, of course, counselors at that age are working with girls that age. They, they ask those probing questions. And I didn't realize that I wasn't supposed to tell. And I told. And so, so yeah, that took another turn. That, that life went in a whole different direction once it came out. Because I was taken out of my family unit. The authorities came in and took me away from, the, with my, from my family. Wow. So this, this went on with this stepbrother went on for quite a few years then before anybody found out about it. And yeah. Yeah. And so what happened then you, you were taken away from your family and, and where did they take you? I was actually, I was at a YMCA camp. And the reason why I even got involved is because one of the managers of that, one of the main counselors happened to be a friend of my mom's. And so that's how it even happened. And so when all of this came out while I was at camp, she then, of course, being in her position, had to call the authorities. And so after that, that night, when I came home from camp, I just went and stayed with her. And that was a whole other world. She was newly divorced and very, very promiscuous. And so I got caught up. It was the first time I smoked pot. I mean, I just, I, I, I just felt heard and seen and not a healthy environment. And what age were you at this point? I was just seventh or eighth grade. So I'm in the middle school. Okay. So 13, 14. Yeah. And so did you stay with that friend for a while? You know, I did. And, and this is the time when the, my, my step family now is starting to kind of, kind of fall apart. And so this is when my mom finally asked me, you know, did this really happen? Of course it really happened. I mean, that was really the big conversation we had. She just asked, is, are you being truthful? And then the divorce started. And so I stayed with that counselor, I want to say probably maybe like five months, but it, it felt like an eternity because here I am now I'm like taken out of this new family of mine, doing everything I was supposed to do in the new family, but now I'm kind of like being disciplined, right? So I'm being taken away. And then the family just keeps living like I'm not missing. <laughs> so it was, again, really, really confusing. Like I... I am just not understanding a lot of this. I don't understand why. So, so yeah, of course, you know, the divorce happened and then, you know, we moved back to the Midwest again because of, again, resources and my mom needed to be able to be by her family. And so you were still going to school through all of this? Yes. Yes, believe it or not. 
I think we are, people who go through trauma are really, really uh, good at putting on the, the mask that everything is just fine. And I was taught that throughout you know, two families. And so I went to school and there was never a question. And you were able to sustain that kind of life without, I mean, I feel like it's amazing what kids go through, isn't it? And they don't break down and they don't tell anybody. It's just, we just keep going as little kids because it just is totally normal in a way. We know it's not normal. We, we don't feel it's normal, but it is just what we know so we we just keep going and it's yeah it's just crazy what little kids go through i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So did you drop out of school at some point? You know, when we moved back to the Midwest, again, I was like at that eighth grade, we went moved back over the summer. And so when I started ninth grade, which was high school, of course, at this time, I'm, I'm pretty much a wreck. I've had a little taste of freedom of what it would feel like to be an adult. And when I lived with the counselor, because, you know, now, you know, I'm, I'm with, I'm with the adults, I'm a, I'm a big person. And so when I went back to the Midwest and got into ninth grade, I had a meeting with the school counselor and he said, you know, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm dressing inappropriately. I'm smoking on the, you know, smoker's corner. I mean, I'm, I'm not the golden child by all means. And he had said to me, you know, I, I don't think you're going to have much success here. And perhaps you should consider, you know, preparing to take a GED or something when you turn 18, but I don't see you fitting in here well. And so I got the green light and, and I took it. And so I dropped out of school in ninth grade and pretty much with all of the childhood or childlike, we'll say life skills, I took that now into my new life. And so I'm functioning at a very low level because I'm, I'm a kid, but I'm also involved in you know, more adult-like things now that I'm out of school. Yeah, so what was this time like when you finished school? Were you able to work? I was too young to work. I couldn't work. And I think you have to be like 15 and, you know, your parents would have to sign or whatnot. And, you know, I'm living it with my mom because the divorce has gone through. And so I'm living with my mom, but I'm completely out of control. She's working three jobs just to, you know, keep the roof over our head. And, and I'm just spinning out of control. And so what I do is I'm hanging out with people, of course, who are smoking and drinking. And, and so, and again, I'm being seen. So this is now like a positive environment for me. And so, and I've also learned, again, that mask, I can become 
whoever they needed me to be. And so I felt in charge. I felt like an adult. I felt like I had some rights. And, and so even though I didn't have the emotional maturity, I had that physical maturity that was necessary to be within that environment with these adults. And so that's where, you know, drinking and drugging became very normal. And it was actually the solution to a lot of my problems. Because if I was doing that, I didn't have to be in reality. I didn't have to really be present for the environment I was in. Yeah. And it's just such a clear spiral, isn't it? That so many people find themselves in just coming from that trauma and then going into that addiction. But it's like such a relief to be there. Um, it really is. Nobody yeah. is what to do. You know, mm. it's, it, it, yeah, it's total freedom. Total yeah. freedom. Yeah. And so how long did that period of your life go for? with the drinking and drugs 19 years wow wow 19 years and you know it wasn't like i was partying for 19 years i think a lot of people misunderstand that they they think you know when you see somebody who's down and out or they're drinking or whatever that you know it's like well you should have stopped drinking a long time ago it's it's not what it looks like all the times of those 19 years my, I was desperate to find a platform or a space or a relationship that would allow me enough stability to get my feet underneath me. So, you know, I would, I would meet people, both male and female. I would, of course, the chameleons there. So I'd become, you know, what I needed to be in order to be with, you know, to be with them, to be in a relationship with them, to get along with their, their circle of friends. And then what I was doing on the other side is I'm, you know, I'm enrolling in a college. I'm getting a job. I'm, I'm doing anything because I desperately just want to get my feet underneath me so I don't have to rely on anybody. That's really my goal. Well, you throw that in with uh, the disease of alcoholism. Well, of course, I'm just going to circle the drain and 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 get nowhere. Yeah, and so that that period of being really low. What what was your rock bottom moment? Do you think? Mm. You say that is it singular? I actually, you know, looking back, and especially you know, writing the book, I was able to see that there were probably three times in my life that I hit that bottom. And it just tells me the, the level of um, strength and resilience that I have, because even at the bottom, I was still gonna dig myself out of it. I still had that hope. You know, what it feels like to be in that space is first off the word alone just really, really permeates and defeated, so defeated. And, and it's just like everything I desperately tried to do, I had the best intentions of doing. Again, like my dad, it was like sand going through my fingers. I just could not I just couldn't grasp it. And so it's, it's defeat, it's exhaustion, it's humiliation, you know, total shame, you know, and it just, you, you feel like a nothing and you question your existence, you know, and there was a time in there, one of my bottoms was that I was going to end that existence. You know, I, I attempted, I attempted um, suicide and an angel showed up at the door actually. And told me either either he was going to drive me to the ER or we were going to call 911 which was it going to be 
<laughs> and uh, I spent I spent two weeks in the psych floor. Yeah. So the you know bottoms don't just happen once, but there those are the three that I guess had to had to happen in order for me to be where I'm at today. So I don't carry regret. I have no regrets. I'm so grateful for. I'm so grateful, period, for the people, the places, and all the things because life would not be what it is today without enduring those things. Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? Everything that you go through makes you into the person that you are, even though it was so tough. So when you you go through that that time, what actually changes? What are the moments that allow you to start moving out of that? dark place there's a sense of relief so for instance when I was in the hospital I it's almost like you 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 got the gift of the pause button you know I I don't have any outside factors I have no outside pressures and everything is focused on my well-being Right. And so people are talking to me and asking me about things and and there's therapeutic things that we do. And so really what it's doing is it's allowing, you know, me to just be the mess that I am without alcohol at this time. And so all of that stuff that I've been shoving down for, you know, how many years, 15, 17 years, it was allowed to come up in a safe space. And so it, it didn't matter you know, my life did not depend on holding it together. So in other words, I could rage and I could have a complete meltdown, but within that safe space, nobody was going to kick me out. Right. So it's like, it, it gave me a little bit of trust that I could go into that place. And of course, when you go in that place, you know, you, you, you pull out some of that darkness and, and with the people that are surrounded with, by, you know, with you is that then that the love is replaced. And so I think it's a process of bringing that old stuff out, like I was able to, and then being able to replace it with things by other people's compassion or understanding or that shaking of their head. They know exactly what it feels like. You know, so that's what that space allowed me to do is just to be able to actually encompass that sort of loving environment. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you say you go to a psych ward and you get this idea that it's going to be a really difficult kind of experience and then it actually just allowed you to download everything and oh, that's it. I can just feel the relief of that. And so what happened when you left that environment? I went right back to drinking. Mm. <laughs> I went back to the same relationship. I because alcoholism was not, it wasn't detected at that time. I didn't say, and they didn't ask. So I went on, um, still in the disease. And, and again, I just, I bounced from relationship to relationship, um, from problem to problem to, you know, to hit bottom a couple more times. And then at age 35, I ended up on my mom's couch in California. And, uh, and I, and I lived on my mom's couch with no job, no, no, no accounts, no nothing. But on the outside, I, I had it all together. I, I looked, <laughs> looked like I had it together. But it was shortly after that, though, that I relocated, of course, one more time. And I moved into a relationship that ultimately allowed me, once again, it's like, there's got to be something bigger than me. Because I'm telling you, at my own 
in my own decisions, <laughs> I can't make this happen. But what was happening is I was I was dating this lady and 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 she happened to be at work and I was driving with her friends, perhaps we were going to lunch or whatnot. And I just nonchalantly said in the back seat, I just wish I didn't drink so much. And it's like little antennas went up in the front seat. These two women, little did I know, both were in recovery. And I had no idea. But of course, they're, they know exactly what my problem is. They've, you know, they've known me for a few months. And so they said, you know, we're going we're gonna to go to a meeting. I was like, all right, cool. Let's go to a meeting. Like, I have no idea. We'll do whatever you want to do. I'm the chameleon. I'll do what you want to do. And so that was my first introduction to recovery. And uh, I went into this really, really big room with a lot of gross, icky people. They were so not of my caliber. <laughs> and so, I mean, some were smoking and some were like, you know, in their suits and the others looked like they just came out the streets. I mean, it was just a motley crew of people. And I was like, ah, and I can still feel how it felt to sit in that metal chair. And I just remember at one point in time, somebody had asked, is there anybody here for their first time? And one of those friends kind of gave me the nudge. So of course, you know, loud and proud, I put my hand up and, 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 you know, they made some small talk and I don't know what was actually said, but these tears started to well up in my eyes and, and I cried the entire hour and I have absolutely no reason why. I have no idea why. Um, at the end, they, you know, they hand this little envelope over and women write their phone numbers down and, and, you know, they're like, if you want a drink, call me first. And uh, that was my, my, my first day of recovery. And that was 14 years ago now. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So and just sitting well, there for an hour and just. Oh, just the release. And I suspect wasn't like you were even super prepared, like you hadn't decided I've got to do this or anything. You just sort of said, I oh, just wish I didn't drink so much. And then you find yourself in a, a situation where you're getting all of this love and help. And, yeah. and how beautiful is that? And it's just finally something good came your way and you were able to take that and and actually make it work for you. And that's just so beautiful. Oh, such a relief, isn't it, to get to that point. And so you must have then sort of gone on to more of a healing journey. Is that what happened? Oh, no. I was oh. a mess. <laughs> because now you've taken away my Band-Aid. Mm. You've taken away my alcohol. And I no longer can be a chameleon. Right. And these emotions that are coming up out of nowhere, by the way, like in the middle of CVS or, you know, and it's like these tears will be rolling. And, and so it's like, I have all these emotions and, and, and I just don't even know what to do with them. And so it probably took me about, well, it took me about nine months to actually trust somebody enough to actually start working with somebody. Other than that, I just went to those meetings every day. And, and all that rage that I had before came up in that room. I can't tell you. I don't know how they, I don't know how they tolerated me. I mean, I would come in, I'd be dressed inappropriately. I'd be dropping the F-bomb all the time. I mean, this is what I'm used to. All you've done is told me I can't drink, but you guys love me anyway. This is fantastic. And so this person would come in and I mean, I would rage about things. I would cry about things, but little did I know that as I was being heard, 
I was actually starting to heal. These people, especially the women, they would give me this hug. Oh my God. And they said, Jules, we'll see you tomorrow. I had not been told something like that since I was a little girl. Oh my gosh. I'm just loving hearing Jules's story. Oh, just that feeling of warmth and love from the people that she's found in this support group. And please join me next week to hear about how Jules goes from trauma to healing and living her most amazing life. journey of healing and community with me. If you are ready to manifest and create the life you really want for yourself, please go to dawnchitty.com. If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at my big love project and please Share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week.